This is the Ethics Lab Podcast, exploring the path from better knowledge to practical results in healthcare ethics. So one example is an elder gentleman, and clearly his health has been going downhill, especially over the last several years. And now he has a major stroke. And now the neurologists are asking the family, you know, what should we do as the next step? Should we go ahead and place a feeding tube? Folks are typically struggling with two poles, what I would consider the right thing to do versus the best thing to do. Why would the question of whether to provide food and water to a patient come up at all? One might assume it is always helpful and never harmful to offer nutrition and hydration to patients. Is that accurate? When might it be appropriate or not appropriate? Our lead contributor, Alan Sanders, Vice President of Ethics Integration and Strategy at Trinity Health, is in conversation with guests in this episode to explore a number of ethical issues related to providing nutrition and hydration to patients who cannot feed themselves. Alan, it's great to have you with us. You have published on this topic, responded to the questions of healthcare professionals in the clinical environment, and you've brought with you some great guests in this episode. In the conversation with your guests, what stood out for you the most? I would like to offer that ultimately, uh, and practically speaking, feeding tubes fit in the same ethical analysis as do all other medical treatments, ranging from the simple, such as the prescription of an antibiotic, to uh, the more complex of a rather starting or uh, discontinuing a ventilator for a patient. And that's to say that for feeding tubes, like all other medical treatments, that ultimately the decision comes down to the patient and what they believe are the benefits and burdens of that treatment in relation to their ultimate goals of care. Uh, We have a responsibility to represent um, their wishes or their values and to help uphold that with families when we're in discussions with them and to help also with many of the misperceptions, the feeling like we might be starving a dying patient by not inserting a feeding tube. I think thorough discussions with families around some of these misperceptions and what feeding tubes can actually accomplish can do a lot for um, providers who find themselves in these conflicts and with these questions. Welcome, everyone. My name is Alan Sanders. I'm here with Dr. George Giocas and Father John Raphael, who have graciously joined us today to have a discussion about feeding tubes and the moral questions that patients and families and staff treating them uh, often struggle with, as well as some of the misperceptions that are out there. Before we begin, I'd like to start with some basic introductions. Father John, if you'll start with an introduction for yourself, please. Hi, Alan. Again, my name is Father John Raphael, and I am a Catholic chaplain and staff chaplain at St. Thomas West Hospital in Nashville, Tennessee. Uh, I have been chaplain here at the hospital since 2012. I'm board certified with the uh, National Association of Catholic Chaplains. In addition to uh, uh, bedside pastoral care, I am also a member of our ethics committee here at the hospital and one of our bedside ethics consultants. Uh, And I'm also the uh, uh, chaplain of the Catholic Medical Association, the Nashville Guild. So kind of keep myself involved on, on those levels. Thank you and welcome. 
Uh, Dr. Giocas? Yes, my name is George Giocas. I'm a palliative care physician. My initial training was as an internal medicine physician in primary care practice, and I am board certified in internal medicine. I originally and initially looked at geriatrics, but as the field of hospice and palliative medicine grew, my certification now is in hospice and palliative medicine. I work full-time with St. Peter's Health Partners and the palliative care division called Palliative Care Partners, and I actually do full-time palliative care consultations at a local hospital, Ellis Medicine. I also serve on the ethics committee of that hospital. Thank you, and welcome. One of the first questions that at least comes to my mind when this feeding tube question comes up is why the question around feeding tubes? I mean, I think simply put, a feeding tube feeds people and uh, providing people with basic food and water. I mean, that's you can't get more basic than that. And I think for all of us, the thought of ever withdrawing or not ever inserting a feeding tube for a patient seems like uh, we're simply going to starve them. But I think that's just the beginning of some of the stresses uh, and questions that may come up in some of these cases. Dr. Geogas, I'll start with you. Would you describe either a particular case or maybe some of the more common experiences that you have had and some of the questions and stresses that they bring for, for patients and families? So two of the most common situations that I encounter in my day-to-day practice are patients with advanced dementia, either of the Alzheimer's type or other forms of dementia. The other situation where I'm most commonly involved is a patient who's had a massive stroke. So one example is an elder gentleman loved by family The last several years, however, has not been kind to this gentleman with various problems, high blood pressure, high cholesterol, heart disease, diabetes. He's progressively becoming more frail. He's living at home, though. Family, meaning his wife and adult children, are starting to do more things for him. This gentleman's always been a very, very independent gentleman. And clearly, his health has been going downhill, especially over the last several years. And now he has a major stroke, is unable to communicate his wishes, is bedbound, and requires total care. But now he's been in the hospital several days. It's clearly been a massive stroke, but his blood pressure is stable, and he's clearly not swallowing. He's on intravenous fluids, which is a temporizing measure. And now the neurologists are asking the family, you know, what should we do is the next step. Should we go ahead and place a feeding tube? Father John, uh, to hear from you, if you could give us a little bit of a summary, uh, like Dr. Giocas did, of some typical cases, and if you have a particular story. My experience is in, in general is that folks are, are typically struggling with two poles, what I would consider the right thing to do versus the best thing to do. And I use those two categories because often, I think existentially, many people sense that there is a great gap, a chasm almost, between those those two things. What do I mean? By the right thing to do, of course, uh, and and everyone has a a, a different moral, ethical uh, system, but but there are many similarities. What is the, the morally appropriate thing to do here? But by the best thing to do is, as you look at 
the patient, you look at your 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 mom, your dad, your your sibling, whomever it might be, in this really difficult situation. There's something else that says, is this really what we need to be doing? So I think one of the things I try to do is to help people see that often that gap is not as wide as they may think it is. And and sometimes there's not a gap at all. That sometimes the morally right thing to do is also the best thing to do. To get there, we have to address uh, again, some of those uh, those those stressors that 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 George has already mentioned. So addressing those concepts, and I think clearly helping people to understand that though those concepts are frequently used, they are inaccurately used. And when we begin to look at what it put the patient in the center, and if the patient is not able to speak for herself, to do the best that we can to uh, uh, again not ask ourselves the question, what do I want done for her? Uh, what do I think is best? But if she were able to answer these questions for herself, what would those answers be? What would those answers look like? What would this treatment look like? And, and I think when we start to move people or help people to move into that way of looking at the question, some of those issues begin to to resolve, at least to be mitigated. They, they may not be eliminated, but I think that helps. So, so the, again, the case that George mentioned, uh, I was thinking of one that uh, kind of often used in, in, in presentations, a woman about 74 years old, fiercely independent. She's a person of faith, uh, uh, deeply of uh, 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 the Baptist faith, this person. She never wanted to be in a nursing home. She didn't want to be dependent upon others. Uh, she suffered a, 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 a rather large ischemic uh, stroke and she was stabilized. Her family was able to come quickly to uh, DNI uh, a determination. But then the question remained now, it, because again, she was not able to take uh, a nourishment uh, uh, by mouth, the question as to whether or not uh, artificial nutrition and hydration should be administered. I often like to leave that telling that story right there because it's interesting how different people will come to uh, a, a resolution, what quote unquote should have been done. Exploring that question, what should be done is, is the area where we need, where we can use to help people to, to, to again, narrow that gap between the right and the best thing. So I, I want to move in and I'll start with you, Dr. Giocas. You know, I, there's already been this uh, misconception. If we're not going to use a feeding tube, we're going to starve them. Uh, and I, I believe, and I know there are other means, uh, for example, that a swallowing exam doesn't mean automatic inability to eat, and eating can actually be very comforting and even more nourishing, for example. But I also know there's a, a lot of misperceptions about what feeding tubes can actually accomplish for people, especially patients who have terminal illnesses and are in the dying process. Uh, Dr. Jokas, can you give us some more details about that? So as you mentioned, the term in the dying process, and there are a number of illnesses, whether it's advanced cancer, um, advanced heart disease, advanced lung disease, to name a few, uh, where people are actually losing weight, not because they're not getting enough nutrition, but they're actually in uh, what we call a, a catabolic state, meaning their body is starting to break down and not utilize nutrients appropriately. 
Um, the medical term for that is called cachexia, and it is quite a bit different than a person who's otherwise healthy who is not getting food. So we call that starvation, an otherwise healthy person who for, for some reason is not getting receiving nutrients versus a person with advanced cancer, advanced heart disease, lung disease, or other illnesses where their body is now not utilizing those nutrients. Um, and in that situation, feeding them will not make them stronger. And I think that's a very important piece, both as clinicians, we need to remind ourselves, but also when we're talking with family, because there's that assumption, and quite honestly, through most of our lives, feeding will allow the person to get stronger. But there are many patients in terminal conditions, not just cancer, where it's not starvation, it's cachexia. And the eating is just a small part of their overall dying process. So that's very, very important. In terms of the patient with advanced dementia, and by advanced dementia, I mean truly the end stage of dementia, where they're minimally communicative, completely dependent on all individuals or individuals for all activities of uh, daily living, uh, bedbound. We used to assume a decade or so ago uh, that by providing them food uh, through a, a feeding tube, that we would do things such as accomplish, they'll aspirate less, meaning they'll less likely get pneumonia, or they'll get stronger. They'll start to be able to engage either with family or if they're in a nursing facility with other, you know, with other residents, or if they have uh, pressure ulcers or uh, pressure sores, that those will heal. Uh, and evidence now shows that that is not the case. Again, the not eating is part of the dying process. And those things that we hoped for, and I think many family members assume will happen, will just unfortunately not occur because they're in a dying phase of their life. Father John, tell us a little bit from your perspective how you've seen some of these misperceptions and you know expectations in the conversations you've been involved with. And maybe talk a little bit about whether anything that you've education you've had to provide it, or maybe some of the clinicians you've worked with that have worked with families that others might see as some good techniques or ways to address some of this. You know, one of the things, just very basically, there is among a large number, and everyone is like not like this, the sense that if something can be done, it must be done. That in other words, if it's clinically possible in any way, not to do it would constitute some sort of moral failure. Uh, now, now that is, you know, on the extreme end of the spectrum, uh, but it is not uncommon. So now what we have to do is, and, and just let me kind of overlay a little, some ethical categories. The goal then is to help people distinguish, at least from my perspective, three different things. Uh, positively ending a person's life, whether it be the person, him or herself, suicide or, 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 or someone assisting at euthanasia, that's one category. The obligation to conserve a person's individual obligation to conserve his or her life, that's the second category. And the notion of prolonging one's life. Those three distinctions, I, I, I think, are, are, are rather critical because in that middle section of conserving life is where we have room to help people understand what is what we might call what they are sort of morally obliged or are committed to do. We have this tradition of ordinary and extraordinary means 
of conserving life. This, I think, is absolutely critical to, to helping folks understand how to navigate through things. Treatments that are extraordinary, even if they are possible, are not obligatory. Now, what we call ordinary means, uh, which we, we would say are obligatory treatments, however, ordinary means are not determined by the objective identification of the treatment itself, a feeding tube. Uh, that's a mechanism of delivery of the means. That ordinary means are suited to the particular condition of the person. So that if, as George mentioned before, in, in the two cases, advanced dementia are conditions that, that bring about cachexia, when a person is in that stage, the whole uh, nature of, of, of what is appropriate, obligatory for that person completely changes because now we would be in the category of prolonging life, different from the obligation to conserve, where we would use ordinary means. So Again, that's not the language that we would have with the families, but I do think it, it's it's these are the categories behind underlying the language, and then we're helping people to understand again, putting themselves in that person's position. Would they be obliged, and would they will, would they desire to have this particular form of treatment? One, they're not obliged to do so, and if they are not obliged to do so, then there is no compelling reason to have this particular treatment given to the person because it's not consistent with where they are clinically at this particular stage in their life. And so the treatment is not proportionate to them. You know, if I'm hearing you correctly, Father John, especially for listeners that may not be familiar with the Catholic tradition, you've used this term extraordinary and ordinary. We, I've often used the term benefit to put it in the context, and you've done this, benefits and burdens of treatments. Do the benefits outweigh the burdens? And one question that often comes up, and one point of this I understood correctly, is that I'm just going to use the example of taking an antibiotic. You know, we would consider that ordinary, I think, in almost all circumstances from the public standpoint. And yet, depending, you know, if somebody is in the last days of dying, isn't feeling like eating, an antibiotic's not going to do much for a fever to begin with. It all of a sudden looks extraordinary, disproportionate. And so one of the questions that often comes up is, well, then who ultimately determines benefits and burdens of treatment, and how do you guide families with that? Ultimately, at least and speaking from the Catholic perspective, it is actually the patient herself who is the, 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 the reference for the determination of, of, of ordinary and extraordinary means. The, the actual term that we use is, is called the relative norm. And again, this is this is gleaned over 500 years of sort of theological reflection on this, that, that even a means, as you say, which for the general rank of persons would be an ordinary means, uh, taking an aspirin, antibiotic, for a particular person, given their age, given their physical, psychological condition, and in some cases, believe it or not, in some cases, financial status, if what the tradition calls a moral impossibility arises, and that can only be determined subjectively. Now, this is not moral relativism. No, but what is it? If moral impossibility arises for an individual, and there are categories that you use to sort of describe that, would this uh, uh, cause for this particular individual great effort or excessive hardship? 
Would it would it cause excruciating or excessive pain for the individual? Would it uh, require them to go through extraordinary expense to use the absolute best means, or does it would it cause in the individual an intense fear or repugnance? All of these are legitimate categories for the individual that might uh, constitute moral impossibility for that for that individual. So ultimately. The determinant of burden and the capacity to bear the burden in light of the treatment belongs to the patient. If the patient is non-decisional and can't speak for herself, then it becomes the responsibility of the surrogates. And and I think this is very important in in a real life conversation because often they have to be relieved of the burden of what is it? Do I have to make a decision for her? No, you are helping us to hear her decision because you know her, because you, you you love her, because you've heard her speak about what is of value to her, what how she would want to respond. So 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 we help to put that responsibility as best as we can on the patient, even when the patient is is not at that time able to speak for herself. Something Father John said is is so so true. And the difficulty we we face in these situations is most of the time when we're having this discussion, we're having the discussion with a surrogate decision maker, either someone who's been formally identified by the patient in the past, uh, a healthcare agent, or a family member, next of kin, whatever your state laws are. As a, you know, so trying to bring the patient, exactly as Father John said, the, that person into the room metaphorically as to what would they say. The other piece, and as a clinician, I approach the benefit uh, burden slightly differently, uh, though I completely agree that in the end, uh, it's the patient who identifies uh, or their surrogate the burdens. And it's a paradigm that Edmund Pellegrino from Georgetown Ethics elaborated saying, it looks at benefits, efficacy, and burdens. What is the benefit of the treatment? And that in Dr. Pellegrino's formulation uh, is solely determined by the patient or their surrogate. What is the patient or their surrogate hoping to get out of whatever the treatment is, antibiotic feeding tube? In the feeding tube issue, and uh, this is something I'm taking from a Dr. Susan Mitchell, who's written about this in terms of patients with dementia, is the overriding goal, primarily life, extending life, mom will be alive longer. Is it primarily improving their function or is it primarily promoting comfort? So again, the patient or family, and generally it's the family or surrogate, define benefits. Efficacy, so is it going to work? And again, there's um, uh, evidence strongly suggesting that in patients with end-stage Alzheimer's disease, feeding tubes will not prolong their life, will not maximize their function. And actually, it can worsen in terms of comfort. And now we're getting into the, the, the burdens part. The burdens is a combination of both the, the patient and certain burdens for some patients, as Father John said, may not be burdens for other patients. A patient facing chemotherapy and losing his hair may not be an issue for a patient or for another patient. Body image is, is, is very, very important. Or in a feeding tube sort of situation, well, this will likely need to be done in a nursing home or a facility. And how, what would mom or dad feel about that? But there are also burdens that physicians, nurse practitioners, clinicians can help have the family understand. 
So feeding tube may mean the patient may need restraints. You know, and sometimes I'll ask family, well, what do you think we'll do if, if we put a feeding tube in mom? And they'll say, well, she's going to try and pull it out. So those sort of issues. We know uh, in the very end stage situation, when we provide more volume, more volume of fluid, with, uh, and I'm not talking about the feeding itself, but just the volume of fluid, patients start to develop more edema or swelling in their hands or legs. Families can see that. Patients will, um, clinicians call this third spacing. Instead of the fluid staying where you want it to stay, it'll get into the soft tissues, including around the neck and in the lungs. So they'll be more likely to have respiratory or breathing uh, secretions. They may need to be suctioned more frequently, which can be very uncomfortable. The, they may have difficulty breathing. In a patient with cancer, they may have fluid about the belly called ascites. The more fluid we give them, there's more ascites there. So there are burdens to that, which, again, I agree with Father John. In the end, it's the patient and family who make that decision. But we can be part of that as letting them know, well, these are the burdens of feeding tubes as well. One of the things I, I'm hearing uh, when, I, and when I'm listening is the importance, and this comes up so often in healthcare, around the goals of care discussion that's typically used in the context of palliative care and hospice. But it's so important for any treatment decision to be asking, what do they expect is going to occur? Is that even going to occur? That's your efficacy issue. And then to get people to think broadly about the burdens, um, not just about the assimilation of the food, but the possibility that it's going to be so irritating to the patient, especially if they have dementia and may not understand what's going on, that some that restraints may have to be put in place. And that's an added burden to the feeding tube. Um, so thank you. I was wondering with Father John's statement, too, of right thing to do versus best thing to do, I think many times there's an assumption from many families that the more that we do, doing everything is necessarily the best medicine. And, and, and clearly now, many medical societies, many experts in medicine will say feeding tubes, CPR, et cetera in certain situations may not be the best thing to do. It, it may be the most technological thing to do, the most interventional thing we can do, but it may not benefit the patient and may actually cause harm to the patient. And can shorten the feeding tubes could shorten life in some cases, the exact opposite of what would be intended, correct? Yeah, certainly if the patient pulls out a feeding tube in their stomach and that causes either bleeding or uh, serious infection. Yes, it's more likely that it may not prolong the patient's life, which is certainly a, a goal, but feeding tubes can cause complications which may shorten the person's life. I want to back up a little bit to other patients. You mentioned stroke earlier, Dr. Giocas. In that particular case, if I remember correctly, she may be so advanced that a feeding tube wasn't an option, but in other cases, they may be. And then we have some other conditions like vegetative state and some of these that bring up some more complicated questions. I guess my first question is, maybe do you have a particular case um, that kind of backs things up a little bit? And how does it change this discussion? What might be some pointers you'd want to bring up for people when these questions, let's say early to moderate dimension, maybe that's not a reality. Maybe the feeding tube hasn't come into play yet. Vegetative state's another one, and I know strokes can lead to that. So there may be a situation where you have a relatively younger person, 50, 60, 40, 
70. Uh, I'm not going to define it specifically in terms of age, but a person who is otherwise in good health is not frail, is quite independent, has, a, has some, co- uh, some additional illnesses, which are important but not major illnesses, and then has this sudden stroke. And that sudden stroke has now affected their swallowing ability. In that situation, the person who was already not clearly going downhill over the last year or many months, who's not necessarily in their dying phase, placement of a feeding tube may indeed allow, and and some estimates are that about 25% of patients who are in that category who have a stroke that's affected their swallowing ability, but otherwise are in relatively good health, about 25% of them will develop the ability to swallow, whether it's weeks, months later. And so that's a, a temporary feeding tube. And so that would be something where one would consider, and as a clinician, unless the patient said, no way, no how, I am never going to accept a feeding tube, I would actually encourage families to consider placing a feeding tube, at least as a temporary measure, and then reassessing. And I think with each of these situations, that's an important part that maybe we'd fail to mention is, yes, there's that initial decision, but then try to assess, okay, let's set some goals. So whether it's four weeks from now or two or three months from now, what are we hoping to see? And what are the things we'd be concerned about? So revisiting that discussion. Patients such as uh, ALS, amyotrophic uh, lateral sclerosis, it's likely that we would prolong their life with a feeding tube. We may not improve their quality of life over the long term. Over the short term, though, if we can avoid dehydration and the person can interact with their family, again, amyotrophic lateral sclerosis or ALS, Lou Gehrig's disease is unique in that separate from dementia, the patient uh, retains their cognitive intellectual abilities. It's just their motor functions are not working. So we would likely prolong their life in that situation. Persistent vegetative state. So again, a patient who may be awake, but no evidence of interaction with their environment. So their eyes may be open. They may have sleep-wake cycles, but they're not interacting at all with their environment or their eyes may be closed all the time, we will prolong their life. Again, they're still at risk for pneumonia and other problems uh, long-term, bed-bound, being in a facility long-term likely. A frail individual, uh, that that first person I talked about with dementia, but people can be physically frail. The frailty is likely the major determinant of whether or not we're going to prolong their life. So, So I hope I've cover those. Maybe I should mention, we talked about advanced cancer, a patient with what we call metastatic disease. It's unlikely two feedings will benefit that person. The exception would be a person with a head and neck cancer that's impairing their ability to swallow. And hopefully we could put a feeding tube in or some device so that they could get nourishment while they're getting cancer-related therapies, whether it's radiation therapy or chemotherapy which hopefully some patients will, because of the nature of their cancer, though it may be under control with the therapies, they may not ever be able to swallow, but they'll still be able to go along with their life with a feeding tube. But that's a distinct category as opposed to the more frequent situation we see of the patient with advanced end-stage cancer where feeding tube is not going to prolong their life.
We hope you have enjoyed this edition of the Ethics Lab podcast, exploring the path from better knowledge to practical results in healthcare ethics. Ethics Lab was created by Kevin Murphy and Russell Keithline. Thanks for listening. Join us again.